Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 71. We are back to talk about the remainder of volume 17. We're kind of compressed on time this session, so we're going to get through as much as we can. This section takes us through one of the more uh, personal reflections uh, Guts has about himself and his journey and how it relates to you know hit the past, the eclipse, and Casca. And by the end of this volume, it kind of sets him on a trajectory where even now he currently is. It's really it's really an about face for where he was and where he is now. I think it's a pretty big big turning point for Guts and yeah. his understanding of himself. So it's a big volume. Before we get started, uh, what I wanted to do was just point out real quick that we're now in a new chapter of the series at this point. Uh, the Birth Festival chapter kicked off the three-part Revelations episodes, and I've been trying to note those as we come across them, because I do think it's nice when Miura kind of takes a different perspective or a different approach to the way he tells the story, because Revelations kicks off the events that are going to culminate, with, of course, with the incarnation of Femto and Albion. You kind of, you know, you see those events coming and culminating in that in that event in Albion, it's earmarked by those chapters. So I, I think it's cool to note that that's kind of where that all began. We're going to have Azeel kick off the first section here uh, with Revelations 3. Alright. So, uh, yeah, I think going off from what we saw previously with the whole uh, Falcon of Light Dreams, this kicks off one of the most interesting ones I think. You know, it's easily my favorite at least. And um, yeah, so it's about that, and I love how this opens up uh, the dynamic shown with the four guys who are in shock at what's going on. You know, they comment on that, we can gather what's happening because they comment on that, taking on uh, 300 mercenaries at once, and at the same time, they're turning around and attempting to flee, and they just get uh, just brutally killed on the same page, you know, decapitated. So then we get that majestic uh, two-page spread of Zod who looks, I don't know, like almost, you know, statuesque. He's just showing no emotion. He looks bored. And yeah, I think it's a, it's one of the greatest, you know, uh, ways to uh, show the character, to show him off. What's interesting about this whole episode, or this really it's a half episode that focuses on Zod, is that I don't, I don't think we've ever gotten anything like this before, or rarely since, where it's focused on the inner monologue of an apostle, you know, like this, and particularly one... Uh, like Zod, you know, who's been so enigmatic until now, I think. So we're, we're learning a lot about his character here, I and mean, we hear about his motivations. He's been searching. We'll, we'll get to that. But yeah, my point is, he looks, as you say, he looks bored. You know, sitting on top of this pile of corpses, this this kind of it's almost a very casual slaughtering he's just done, and it's kind of re- reflecting on that. Like, what has this brought me? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. look on his face. So, do you think these guys just happened to fall into a pile that he could sit on, or did he actually? Can you like? Is there a lost <laughs> scene where he's gathering them up into a nice little, you know, place to rest himself? Or maybe he waited until they got to the certain point and then he decapitated them. Like, oh, a little to the left, a little left. there we go. <laughs> yeah, you know, and hopefully they fell the right way. <laughs> it might actually be the case, you know, that he gathered them up because, well, first thing, you know, I, I love how slow Mura takes it here because we talked uh, previously in the previous podcast episode about how dense some episodes can be uh, for example with 342 it's pretty dense but this one feels I don't know about you guys but it feels kind of slow to me like Mura takes his time we focus on the crow you know like we get the introduction of Zod and everything then we focus on the crows before going on Zod himself and he like you said he's posing like uh, Rodin the sinker you know Mm-hmm. Just, you know, uh, I don't know if you know that statue. It's a famous statue by Rodin, actually. French, I have uh, heard of the thinker. 
Yeah, well, so yeah, he's, he's, you know, sitting just like that and just basically pondering on his life, what he's been doing, and it seems like pretty much thinking about what a waste his life has been. I mean, at least to me, it comes off a bit like that. You know, it's been futile because no man can satisfy him. Apostles can't satisfy him either. There's really only one, the Skull Knight. And then he just, you know, gets to think, ah, oh, there's also that guy gets, you know, and he's just, you know, thinking about rumors that he's killed some apostles now. But yeah, pretty much he's just, you know, he seems very, I don't know, I wouldn't say blue, but yeah, bored and very pensive, thinking about what could be. And then that's when he's about to think about his true desire when the Falcon of Light arrives, you know. <clears throat> so I think what he's we're really seeing is like Azad is experiencing existential malaise. You know, he's gotten all these powers you know, risen to the top of the pack, and, and but yet he's not content with with that. He has a rival, but it's not exactly. It's, it doesn't seem like it's exactly what he was looking for, right? Because that's kind of what he's experiencing here. Is like he's spinning his wheels. He was hoping for something that hasn't yet presented itself, and that's kind of the whole purpose of this episode. Is that, basically, uh, it's like he has no he has no purpose. Yeah, in yeah. life, you know, really. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. He's been, you know, like for three hundred years and. Yeah, he's got nothing out of it. And then the Falcon of Light arrives, and he's like, you see the wings. I, I love how you see the, the how say, shining wings who just, you know, uh, how say, makes the other crows go away. And I like how he's, like, he's confused at first, surprised, I would, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so Falcon explains to him that it's, you know, happening between dream and reality or something like that. And Zod has got questions, but what I love is that the, the Falcon, which is Femto, cuts him off tells him that, like, wars are not something he would be satisfied with. And I, I got the feeling that this is really a smart play because Zod is probably, you know, aside from Ganishka, one of the apostles that would be the hardest to convince to follow Griffiths, the hardest to convince to just do the bidding of the garden or anything like that. But by showing up like this and presenting things like this, he actually gives him exactly what he wanted. And that's what he says. He thinks, we, we see him smile, you know, which is in contrast to his previous boredom. And he's, he drops his sword, transform, and say, yeah, that's what I seek. It's the strongest, you know, the mm-hmm. absolute strongest. Before that, just I like the way the falcon is portrayed. You know, it's a very obvious uh, illusion, but the fact that the beak forms the outline of Femto's mask, I thought that was a really cool touch yeah. on that one panel there. But also... What the Falcon says about what you saw were not words, and he calls him immortal, and then, or Nosferatu. And then that strikes a chord with Zod, you know, almost as if, I mean, yeah, as you all think you pinned it in that actions are the way to convince Zod, you know, let's get right to the fight. But I don't know, something about that, the way, what he says, kind of like, kind of teasing him about being immortal. I don't know how to make, what to make of that other than Zod's demeanor instantly changes when he says, let's not talk, I guess. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think the title means much. I mean, I, I actually, I don't think, I don't thought about it, but I don't think the title means much in itself. Um, I don't think Femto actually implies that uh, he can kill him or something about not being able to die. Maybe it's just a reference to the fact that Zod has pretty much been so strong that nobody has been able to defeat him. You know, maybe that's a reminder of that, and that actually works because he, after that, he says, "Yeah, it's what he seeks is a." You know, the strong, the absolute strongest. So about the about the wording that's used here. You know, the absolute strongest. I've also seen, of course, ultimate strong one as yeah. the translation here. Well, it's um, the same. It's the same actual meaning. What he means mm-hmm. is the 
Yeah, the just basically the strongest being in existence. That's it. He seeks the strongest one. So you you know, absolute is just a way to handle that. And then strongest or strongest one or strong one, it makes no difference. It's just you know, so the meaning is the same. Well, I, I think this in itself convincing Zod. Kind of, I don't know. We've we've had this discussion so many times. I don't even. I don't feel I need to explain the whole thing. But do you think he was looking for something specific, and that this fight con- confirmed it? Like, actually, I don't, that I don't think it was something-, something specific. I think it was just that this is, you know, this was the best way to sort of the Falcon of Light says it itself. You know, this is how to communicate with Zod, and yeah. Zod is going to be more receptive to it. And it also, while at the same time bringing him to heal. And dominating him is the way to speak to him. It's just even going about it that way shows a greater understanding of him and what will speak to him than if he, you know, tried to tell him like, hey, you know, you should serve me, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, this is, you know, your duty as an apostle. It doesn't work. You know, he doesn't necessarily work that way and has stated that on a few occasions. So this was the best way to really just sort of show him, show him who's boss. Yep. And that, and, you know, that, that would just be, you know, both. It sort of, you know, leaves him no recourse. He can't really say, well, you know, oh, I don't want to follow you. It's basically telling him you don't have a choice. Yeah, I, you know, in a way, I think uh, by by telling him that uh, Femto, he gets beyond what objections uh, Zod might have, you know? Yeah. So, and he one-ups him, and like you said, he also, like, utterly defeats him. So it's... I think it's a complicated scene which works on several levels for Zod. So, yeah, he shows him he's immensely stronger than him. He shows him why he should serve him. He also, you know, makes it clear that serving him is like not necessarily an option. So there's all of that put together in one fact. And yeah, like like we've said, it's something that you know I think works for Zod that pleases him personally. It works with what he desires. And uh, and yeah, I mean, for you know, you could imagine that for most apostles, just serving the greatest one and being able to I don't know <clears throat> live their lives and by killing and destroying as many people as possible. We just please them, but for someone like Zod, you need a bit more than that. And uh, I think, yeah, Femto provides it here. Yeah, and inadvertently it gave him, you know, even though he didn't express this in words, you know, he didn't say it, and, you know, it may not have even been what he was looking for, it did give him a purpose in life. There is a focus now to the destruction, you know, sort of a point to his sword, you know, yeah. why yeah. why he does what he does. And what I think something that's also very revealing is that Zod was surprised at why, you know, at what was happening. He, I think, we see him thinking about apostles and the skull knight and even guts, and he did not think about the god hand. And I think, like, he was surprised that this would be the answer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, and it worked so well because we, we get to see later on that an apostle like Zod, who was, you know, showed disdain, he was disdainful during the eclipse when he talked to the skull knight he said like yeah. yeah this kind of stuff isn't for him he's not interested in that he would rather just wait outside for the skull knight to show up because yeah you see that's what he cares about fighting fighting strong people and yeah an apostle like him went from that attitude to the attitude he has now where he's pretty fervently devoted to to uh, griffiths even if sometimes he looks bored or he's a bit you know still disdainful towards other apostles or whatnot but yeah he's he's pretty you know devoted. he'll, he'll to kill griffiths. them without you know sometimes he'll he'll kill them more readily than he'll kill you yeah. know someone he should like guys. <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much but yeah the thing is he was the first one when griffiths came to be when femto was incarnated 
and he hasn't left him from from then, and he serves as yeah. his personal right. So I think that shows the effectiveness of this approach and how clever it was of Femto to do that. And he also, because he's that way, he doesn't get sidetracked on the you know the sort of gruesome sideshow like the other apostles will get sidetracked with those things, and he'll sort of you know bring them uh, back into the fold and focus them. Like when they went to get Flora, and he told them you know go you know, get back to work. Don't worry about this. And, you know, he just started fighting Skull Knight. As he said, he put it, it's just because I'm the only one that can hold you. Yeah. He's yeah. not just doing it for his own purpose, but it does come along with his duty. Yeah, he's giving a, a, a bigger goal, a big, something to aspire to, something to do. Uh, yeah. In a way, it's reminiscent of Guts, who was looking at some point in his life for a dream to follow, you know. He wanted to follow Griffith's example and was looking for a greater purpose. Which and he, he was also brought in by force. Yeah. yeah. So it's a uh, you know it's a uh, yeah it, it's reminiscent of that. To me. A few interesting visuals here. When Zod finally drops his sword and transforms, we actually get a mid-apostle transformation, which I don't think we've seen from Zod before. You see his horns kind of sort of grow out of his head a little bit. Uh, the human features start to bleed away in that one shot as well. Yeah. I also like the. Um, the spiral effect around his arm, that the nature of the attack itself is very supernatural move itself, you know, wrapping itself around him. And the way the horn splits, the clean cut that happens in slow motion almost, and then the explosion of the face is the face is sliced in half, the eyeball kind of popping out the other side. It shows him his death. Pretty pretty much. What's interesting is that you can tell the Falcon could do anything wanted. In that scene, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and you can just imagine, you know, that's just what's happening to sort of his face. But like, obviously, with what we see on the page before, his entire body would likely have just been shredded into pieces in that one, you know, attack. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's just being sliced in half, basically. You know, well, I mean, it might be in diagonal, but the point is, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's obviously dead at that point. And yeah. what I like is like we go from these shots, which are very like one page, we see the attack. Uh, then we see the aftermath where the, you know, light, I don't know, the light at the, of the feather just sliced him off. And then we see his eyes, you know, wide open as he just, you know, wakes up from the dream. And what mm-hmm. I really like about this scene is how it's, uh, framed because we see his eyes, we see him in, in the dark as he's thinking about, you know, was it just a dream? And then he sees a horn on the floor. And then we see that he's actually, you know, like profusely breathing from, uh, from the head and that he's only been cut off. I really love how that's done because, like, the slow reveal of, you know, the fact it was not just a dream. The ending text of that scene is, of course, giving him direction for uh, towards Albion, which is where he'll eventually meet up with yeah. uh, Femto. When he stands, he actually gets the Oracle, right. which is, I expect is still from the from the Falcon. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's interesting. And one thing about the horn is that at that time, we don't know it yet, but that horn will never regrow. Yeah. So it's it's also, you know, a mark of his allegiance of the fact he's been defeated, that his horn will never regrow from that that particular, you know, uh, attack. It's slowly growing back. It looks to me like it's been growing a little bit, like the ridge itself is, is increasing in size over the <laughs> that past. That could also you know. be a, a style. It could, effect. yeah. Because I mean, I it, also the, the his design has fundamentally changed where like the, you know, yeah. which is kind of neat, the idea that the, the remaining horn has compensated. Yeah, it's going <laughs> it grown, it, it's it's almost twice as big as the mm-hmm. the cutoff horn. You can just see from the base that's left over. Yeah, where that one is sort of you know it's almost as if that one is withered and scarred and gone to the side, and so now he's just this one horned uh, beast. Mm-hmm. You know, but by design he's sort of compensated. So 
Yeah, yeah I, cool. I actually think it's uh, exactly like that. Yeah, it's a compensation. I think it was more home I played it. And do you think that this is sort of the end? Like, you know, he's been, you know, he has seen, he's been defeated and everything, or is there almost sort of a promise here? Where, you know, do we think literally one day it's, you know, because we've heard other apostles, you know, Rakshas, obviously, you know, he talks about wanting Griffith's head, things like that. Is it almost a promise to kill him, you know, one day? Once his duty is done, he will fight him and he will destroy him. That's not how I took it. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's very open. Yeah. I, I don't take it, uh, I didn't take it like that, but... Uh, it doesn't have to be, but just the, the idea. Sure, I, I get what you're saying. I I don't see it necessarily either, but I totally, I don't, I think it's a valid interpretation. Like he's, he's, he's showing him a glimpse of a glorious death, which he couldn't have with anyone he's fought previously. You know, to Skull Knight, he can fight him to a toe. With Guts, he's merely interested. The Apostles, he can dominate. But this is something where he can actually die in combat. I, I, I really wonder, I mean, do you guys, do you guys expect? I mean, it, it, you know, the, the counter to that is it's not even necessary. Yeah. You know, that this, this mm-hmm. was already, you know, he already showed it to him. It was as real as can be, you know, the horn shows that. But I mean, it's just, an, it's an interesting thought. I don't think, well, it'll probably be moot because he belongs either to Skull Knight or Guts. <laughs> I think we, you yeah. know, from a literary standpoint. Going down that lane is saying, would one day actually turn you know, on Griffiths alongside Guts, you know, because that's pretty much what this line of thinking goes to, you know, is if there's a promise of a fight, why wouldn't Zod, you know, like take an opportunity and say, all right, you guys, you know, when Guts comes saying, okay, you can go and I'll, I'll just, you know, delay Griffiths by dying, you know, fighting him. But mm-hmm. I, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced that will happen. I'm not sure that would be very interesting because there's nothing, you know, emotionally to it and, uh, I mean, I don't think it would be necessarily very interesting because, yeah, Femto, much like he dominated Ganeshka or any other possibility. The only thing that could come of it to where we would, you know, have it confirmed or denied or anything would come of it would be for him to mention something about it, you know, that he's going to get that death one day. But short of that, yeah, it's probably moot. Just an idea. Yeah. Before we moved on, one thing about the horn I wanted to say that was interesting was it's actually revealed that Zod loses his horn in the uh, 1998 calendar, which was revealed, released in 1997. Uh, this episode was released in 1998, so a full, basically a full year before we see this episode. Yeah, when you know that Zod loses a horn for some reason and is standing alongside Femto in that same picture of the calendar. The picture I'm referring to is basically the prototype of Volume 34's cover, so it's really interesting. So yeah, uh, well, we cut to Guts after that, which is, I think it's proper because <clears throat> the only character where, you know, the Dream of the Falcon of Light could be more interesting than that is Guts, basically. What, what I find interesting is that the introduction we see is it shows us the events, like previously we saw them on the scale of a country from Raban's perspective, and now we see them on the scale of Guts, which is, you know, I like that uh, contrast between the two things and where he's just crossing villages and you know, every village is, you know, come across recently has been full of dead people. And for him, that means he can't rest easily because even during the dead, houses will be, you know, full of specters. So Puck, you know, uh, proposes him to, to sleep in an unseen shrine, which is also interesting. It's a small, a small glimpse into, yeah, the wonders of the ancient magical world, I guess. So yeah, that's nice, especially since these are, uh, Celtic. You know, kind mm-hmm. of monuments of standing stones. Yeah, we've seen this is kind of the first of a few different types of these that we've seen. You know, we see saw we saw some of these kind of structures outside of uh, Enoch Village, the, yep. the little circles 
kind of things, where it's kind of the remnants of an older civilization that, you know, gave elves a little more uh, due. Yeah, just the Earthsword world in general. Right. And, right. you know, reminiscent of Stonehenge. Yeah, of course. Yep. All these types of, yeah, standing stones. It's uh, There's also some in France, in Brittany, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So anyway, I like also that it cuts back, like, straight on to the point, the dream. And uh, I like the, the form it takes for Gus, which is very personal and very different from that of the others. Whereas uh, the Falcon of Light is actually not so uh, light, full of light. It's a, it's a pole, uh, a stake on which to burn someone. <clears throat> and Gus is surprised and sees the, the torches and someone in shackles, and the specters, and we actually get to see it's Casca with a full moon, you know, like huge at the back, and uh, yeah, he actually sees that she'll get burned at the stake. And I like that when she's burned, the the stake itself, the falcon's crest, actually flares up, and that's how you get the falcon of light imagery, that it flares up with her death. So it's actually, like, it's very personal, but at the same time very ominous, and... Uh, it still feels like Femto, I don't know, uh, teasing Guts or at least, you know, uh, hinting that her death will be his uh, rebirth or that kind of stuff. So it's uh, it's pretty gruesome, pretty personal, pretty insulting and very interesting uh, as far as the imagery goes. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. how specific it is and sort of how much it manages to fit in there while actually being pretty simple. You know, we don't get that. There's not that many shots in this dream. You know, we see, you know, and some of it is just spent on like, we see the flaming torches. We see the faces, you know, that look like just monstrous specters that also, I guess, they kind of represent the crowd because we see people's hands holding yeah. the torches in the next shots, you know. Yep. But as we find out, that's actually very literally what happens, yeah. you know. And so it's really interesting how simple it is, how sort of iconic it is, but how, you know, true it is and representative of what does happen. And, of course, yeah, yeah like you said, the... The falcon flaming to you know back to life you know at the yeah. end it's very prophetic yes also the uh the moon imagery relates to yeah. still talking about the reflection of a you know the moon's light on water this being a reflection of the eclipse and just it's a good metaphor you know the the shadow of the falcon in front of the moon sort of you know for what yeah. this ceremony is yep right yeah the silhouette of it. Also, this is our first look at long-haired Casca, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, right. I think so. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's uh, that is right. So this must have been right. really. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, you must have been uh, pretty strange right. then for readers at the time. Yeah. Just to see this. Yeah, that being said, her. we would. That being said, we knew exactly who it was. You know, maybe not yeah. upon first glance, but on the close-up, it's unmistakable. You know that it's Casca grown up a little bit. Two years, two years along. Yeah, I think it's um, pretty. It's pretty clear to her. Yeah. Anyway, Gus uh, then wakes up and wonders if uh, it was, you know, that you know that nightmare was because of uh, an incubi. But he's actually like, it's still the day, you know. And he heals uh, in a in a sanctuary, presumably. But then he sees uh, his son, the demon child, looking at him from there, <coughs> and he gathers up that the child did it, which is actually it's interesting because he's mistaken there. It's not the case. The boy did not uh, provoke the dream, but he came mm -hmm. to warn him. And uh, I like that he takes up uh, Casca's face to because he pro you know he probably can't speak well, so he just you know takes Casca's face and gets it across saying danger, danger. And uh, <clears throat> you know Gus realizes because you know the face starts burning away 
uh, that you know there's really you know something going on. He puts two and two together and you know gets that Casca is actually you know something has happened to her, and that how he rushes back to her after what three years uh, of uh, just hunting apostles in the wild. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty disturbing it's pretty disturbing imagery, particularly since this is his child telling him that you know its mom is about <coughs> to be you know destroyed, and the time is running out. They'll have to hurry to save her, and that you know her face her face kind of fading with the flame. Very disturbing. Yeah. Also, I like how the image you know we see this kind of dramatic shot of the face at first, the head, I guess, and then we see from Gut's perspective, rather behind the boy, the head actually there, you know, in the shadows. I like yeah. that shot as well, kind of getting. Grounding that shot a little bit. And it so just seems it, disturbing, it, you know, from the standpoint, it's like her head there. But then, you know, when it catches on fire and, you know, starts basically giving him this very specific mission to, you know, mm-hmm. to get a move on, it becomes the, a little clearer to him. The prophecy that it talks about is, is of course, what Zod hears uh, during his dream. And so I think we've talked about this years ago that I think Azil you had offered that it was probably that the boy kind of picked up on that and relayed it to Guts. Not necessarily that it's, you know, it, it, it kind of knows the specifics of this prophecy because of its relation to the astral world, perhaps. Yeah. But it's just interesting that it's the exact wording, you know? Yeah. And he might, he might have gotten the dream as well, or he might have, you know, there's many ways it could have, uh, you know, caught on to that. You know? I mean, yeah. he could... Because he's connected to his dad and his mother, so and like you said in the astral world, he's got a very specific connection to the whole event actually. So I'm not I'm not so surprised. What is what was surprising to me in this reread was I kind of always took it for granted the message that Zod got. But what's interesting is the first part of that message does specifically relate to Casca's death. The bar even you know, Zod's message is about when the sky falls at the holy ground, where blind sheep gather and erect a pillar of fire, that specific image is related to Casca's death. And yep. <laughs> it's really as if her death was uh, a linchpin for the incarnation ceremony. Of course, we know that that's ultimately subverted, and it happens regardless of that event. So, Yeah, but you know, like some things that I've always uh, thought is that she really was meant to die at that point. And yeah. that's one instance where uh, they kind of, you know, trumped up, uh, trumped up causality is that they managed, you know, Gus and his friends and Isidro and Puck specifically managed to to save her. So I think yeah. that's also some things that will come to play a role. Soon, soon enough in the story. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can, well, you can see it now if there was no Casca you know, what influence would the child have on Griffith? You know, would there have been enough to even keep it relevant? Or would its ego have been completely, you know, destroyed? Or would it have just been a malice for Guts for failing to protect her? Yeah, things would be would be very different in any case. Like, yeah. I mean, even with the Berserk Samos a number of times, uh, Guts have, has had to be brought back to his senses, and every time, every single time it's been... Uh, sex to Casca. So if he, if she wasn't there, he would just be. He would have been lost long ago. And I mean, I would mean, he? You know what? What would his motives even be? You know, yeah, to precisely. wear the armor or fight or yeah. Would he have just the, been killed in vain at some point? Yeah, the following episodes kind of make that clear to us. You know, he even says eventually that you know, that the other is another flame burning within him, and it's it's it's, it's you know how he feels about Casca. So I, I don't think. You know, he talks about her saving him time and time again. I don't think he could live the way we know him without Casca. Yeah. Anyway, that's about it for this episode. But I think it's a, yeah, it's really 
this specific one is really uh, a key turning point because, you know, like I said, it's when Guts finally, after so long, uh, gets back to Casca. Yeah. So within one episode, Guts arrives back at, on the mountain, which 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 is which was I like the way this this scene opens um, with Erica by herself chopping firewood. She sees a snowflake falling, which is an indication that the seasons are changing. Uh, we don't see the full swing of that until I think it's volume twenty three when Guts is fighting snowmen. But the seasons are indeed changing. I'm assuming we're at the ending part of uh, fall or so, and you know because of Guts uh, or Godo's on a mountain, you know elevation means snow. Anyway, that's just a small detail about the time passage. Uh, Puck kind of whirls onto the scene. Um, I, you know, this kind of always threw me off as a as a reader. Is I always because of the the casual way in which Erica and Puck interact, I always forgot if they had met before. Of course, they didn't meet before. This is their first yeah. interaction. But uh, just the way the way they interact uh, <laughs> seems like they're old friends, basically, and throughout this whole scenario. Like I, I, I like that uh, Erica, you know, stalks him and tries to uh, grab him like she would, I don't know, a big fly, you know, just, you know, slap him off. And that's what she says as well. Is she found something neat in the forest. Yeah. Know, running to show Rickert what it is. Do you, um, I should have asked this before the show, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but does, this, does the song that Puck sings have any significance? Because the way Dark Horse translates it, it's very generic, and, and I actually don't think it has any basis. At least in the English translation of it, I have absolutely no idea, and I have, uh, I never checked it out. So I, okay, it's a, it's a good question. Actually, it's a very good question, but uh, I have to admit, it's I, probably some Japanese song about winter coming or something like that. I don't, I don't know. It's just, yeah, just a guess. But, well, if it, if it's something about uh, winter coming, it's most definitely Japanese, but it might also be something you uh, are made up for Puck. Yeah, totally. Anyways, Puck spinning around dancing and Erica slaps him together. <laughs> he's just, <laughs> I love how he snaps his finger. It's just completely ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, Guts emerges from the forest. I really like this because, you know, his oh, yeah. his mood, maybe his mood's not changed, but her, her vision of him at first is like a beast coming out of the forest, you know, shrouded in darkness, the, the eye glowing like that. Yeah. I, or I, Batman. I, I, or Batman. <laughs> I, I, I like that it shows him, like, that's how he appears to other people. And yeah. he, like I, I, I really love that Mura decided to show him in that Black Souls money, uh, kind of style, to Erica, where she's you know like she's taken aback and I would say scared, and then she mm-hmm. sees his face and he's just being friendly and he's you know guts and you know she smiles. But yeah, the first shot of him being you know in the dark and he's in this Black Souls man style thing, uh, I think it's really great because it shows like how even to friends he can look uh, horrifying. And I mean, even the way it's presented, I've always taken this as, you know, because this, the shot of his face at first, it's still sort of in shadow and it's sort of, it's almost like the, the, the veil is being lifted, you know, it's dark up on the top and then near his, where he's smiling, it gets lighter. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's almost like him making this transition back into, you know, he's making this, you know, small talk about her being bigger than she was before. But, you know, you can still just see how wild and, you know, how wild he is coming out of the forest like that. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this episode in particular, and it's focused on others in this volume as well, but in this one, it's really about how guts has changed or what the years have done to guts. And I think it makes sense to open that this episode with him looking so wild like that. Um, anyway, guts meets up with Rickard again and it's been two years. And of course they're very surprised to see him. He's not had any communication with him whatsoever. You know, he could have been dead for all they knew, but 
Uh, Rickard's little grown-up has a ponytail now. Cuts right to the chase, uh, asking where Casca is, but Casca uh, wa- has wandered away. Uh, Rickard is slow to tell him the truth because, of course, he feels some some part of it. He feels a little slightly to blame because he couldn't find her. And Gus, you know, immediately grabs him, you know, violently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which makes Erica cry, and she explains uh, the whole scenario, which was really that, of course, Casca ran away for the first opportunity because she's been in the cave for two years. You know, that's something that hit me in this reread is, you know, obviously Guts had his own reasons for doing what he did, but I don't know, to leave someone like that in her state in a cave like that with just you know, a, a girl child to keep her company, that, that can't have been easy. Yeah, this is really difficult. He, he does get shit uh, for it from Godo and everything. I think he kind of deserves it. I, I think it also plays, you know, like the fact he left her like that, it, it works with the whole Black Swordsman arc where he was really at his lowest, I would say, like mentally and morally, you know, before he met Puck, where he's really, like, he's ready to do anything for revenge. And, uh, and yeah, I think it also participates in what he uh, swears after that, which is that he, he's done it this time, but he won't do it again. Yeah. This whole scenario, you know, Erica is berating Guts for for doing this as well. And uh, she says, why aren't you looking out? Or, or um, sorry. <laughs> Guts asks Swicker, why isn't he out there looking right now? And then Erica, you know, berates Guts saying, he, he tried and you're the one that left and left for, for two years. Anyway, um, Rickert came back because, of course, Godo is now sick or dying rather. We transition up there. And we see Godo lying down, saying it's too noisy. Too noisy. He can't sleep. I really love Godo's whole like attitude throughout this whole thing. It was, despite the gravity of the situation, you know, the fact that Gus has been gone for two years, the fact that he's obviously been fighting monsters, and the fact that Godo's on his deathbed, he's given everything like a very just like a frank appraisal of everything. You know, it, it fits his, it suits his character, and it makes me miss him a lot because I kind of miss that attitude. Uh, without a characters. Yeah, he didn't take shit from anyone, not even Guts. Yeah, yeah. he didn't want, like, even his sympathy. <laughs> you know, yeah. Just, you know, you're, I'm disgustipated with you. <laughs> Don't look at me that way. <laughs> um, Godot talks about how he kind of has some, some knowledge of the outside world with the plague, and so Guts asks if he has the plague, and, and he says, no, he's just, it's just old age that he's dying of. He's an, he's an old guy. But uh, what I like about the scene is, of course, you know, Guts shows, or he asks Guts to show him the Dragon Slayer, and the cracks that are in there, you can kind of read it on his face. You know, someone like a master blacksmith is going to know the kind of damage it's going to take to make this kind of dent in his, you know, master work. And so you can kind of read Guts' experiences through the damage on not just the sword, <laughs> but also the arm itself. Yeah, I, I love how his appraisal is just, you know, like you see just dots, you know, he's like, hmm, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, what's he yeah. done? What's he done with this? Yeah. But also because it transitions from that, uh, you know, he's acknowledging Guts' achievements while also berating him for them. He's like, big deal, you can kill monsters, you're still a coward, you know, for who, for who left uh, your most important thing behind. But also what's interesting about the pairing of these images is, you know, the, the cracks and the dragon slayer and uh, the Nixon and the sword. And, you know, we turn the page and we see how Guts himself has sustained injuries himself, you know. Not, of course, not only to his face, but also his sanity, you know, he talks about how hate has been driving him. Godot nails it when he says, you know, if you didn't hate that much, you wouldn't be able to stand up, you know, which yeah. of course, everything Godot says is really talking about the beast and the kind of person Guts has had to become and, 
to, to, to survive out there. And he's basically thrown himself into his anger and his, his hatred to just prop himself up. But even that in itself was an escape uh, from the pain of, of dealing with what actually happened to his comrades. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, again, a lot of this is, is the basis for how we understand the beast, how we still understand the beast. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, Godot's speech is very, like, I wouldn't say uh, prescient, but he does, he does say, like, everything he said is right, basically. It's, uh, it's really a way, you know, like, it's so true that Gus has nothing to reply to that, even in his, uh, in his state. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a very important speech. And, like you said, we, we do miss Godot's even, you know, uh, even though it's been so long after his death. And I think that speech in particular is really quite memorable. And, like, I mean, every, every, almost every speech he's, he's, uh, given has been memorable, but this one is really, Again, it participates uh, to God's development in this volume, which really is leaps and bounds, you know. He really goes fast and makes a lot of progress. And I think that speech is determinant, especially to the time he stays afterwards in the cave uh, reflecting by himself. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's just an important, I think, a rebuke of sort of the perception of, you know, the black swordsman lifestyle as being this sort of really cool, <laughs> you know, justified, you know, revenge trip. You know, it's this sort of righteous thing that Guts is doing where, you know, these other characters, Goto and uh, Erica, are sort of pointing out that, like, actually, you know, this isn't a good thing you've been doing. You know, the other side of the story is that you sort of abandoned, yeah. you know, the one person you had left to you and that it's, you know, in a lot of ways it's very – it's despicable, you know, and cowardly from another yeah. point of view. What I like is so, – yeah, what I really like is that he basically calls him a coward for doing what he did, whereas – like from from God's own point of view, and I'm sure from point of view of many casual readers, they might think it's uh, rather courageous. But yeah, I think Godot renays it by saying it's uh, it's cowardly, and it's just something God did to escape his sorrow, to escape his own trauma at what happened during the eclipse. He would he'd rather left his girlfriend in a cave and went on by himself to just like angrily kill things rather than face his own problems. Uh, Puck also hears this. Rickert and Erica hear it as well. You see them looking up from the, the downstairs. So Puck kind of gets a little bit more context about Guts as well. Because uh, Guts kind of opens up about his comrades dying like bugs. Uh, you know, and just to add on to what you guys said as well, uh, it's really, it's kind of an about face narratively for Mira as well. As you said, you know, the Black Swords in perception at the time was that Guts was his hero, but you know this kind of gives us a totally different perspective on that. And I, I feel like it's Miura kind of developing Guts, you know, even even more uh, by giving us his perspective, because now he has to grapple with this as well, with the with the knowledge that he's left Casca basically to rot. And now he has to go find her. Yeah. And it, it's not something that came easy to him either. There's actually quite a bit of tension in this <coughs> scene. Where, you know, mm -hmm. first Guts sort of tries to blow him off, you know, like, you know, telling him it's not like him to lecture him. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Goto persists, you know, call it, you know, saying how fearful he was and everything. And so Guts, you know, sort of breaks down further and kind of challenges him saying, you know, you don't understand what I went through. And right. Goto in turn kind of dismisses that and basically just lays it to him like, hey, man, all I know is what I see, that what happened. You know, it's like, yeah, I don't know what happened to you, but I know what you did after. Yeah. You know, it, it actually reminds me, in a way, of uh, what uh, went on with Farnese, where, you know, she was, you know, putting on airs and uh, playing at being, like, the cruel, you know, sadistic, whatever. But when confronted, she broke down quickly. And, you know, it's a bit, like, I wouldn't say it's not exactly the same thing. 
But it's the same kind of uh, development where Guts just makes fun of what God is saying, and then he breaks down, and you see, like on that page with the specters at the top, and you see his face, he's holding his face. She mm. looks like he's uh, like he's half crazed, you know, in that page. And, yeah. Yeah, and he explains it, and then, like you said, Godot just rebukes him again and saying, like, he was just cowardly and he left Casca behind, so while he pretends he cared so much about these people, he abandons the only one who was left. And then Guts, you know, like, because he's Guts, you know, he just quickly realizes that, well, God was right, and what he did was really shitty. Uh, the episode ends with talking about Godo saying that you're a sword with a fatal nick in it that's about to break. And transitioning into the next one, uh, Feeble Flame, Small Flame. And so, yeah, this episode begins, uh, you know, with kind of a inspiring little scene where Erica, you know, brings uh, Guts over the hill to the Hill of Swords where we see for the first time. And they explain, you know, Guts asks what's going on and Erica calls it basically a, a cemetery or graves. And Rickard explains, you know, that he's become a blacksmith. He's been making all these swords. And even though it's probably not the right number and, you know, they're not buried here anyway, it's just his way of sort of marking uh, the death of the Band of the Falcon. And Guts sort of, you know, he's obviously touched by this. And also, you know, you can actually even see Puck sort of, you know, I think feeding off of, you know, Guts feeling here and also his admiration for Rickard and what he's done with his pain and how he's turned it into something productive and found a way to move on. And so it's an interesting little contrast with him as well. Yeah, I love the and, visual of the Hill of Swords, just in general. Just a really cool idea. Uh, and, and also, as you said, that it's, it's Rickert's way of dealing with the death of his comrades, as you said, in a productive way. It's a, just a very nice touch visually and symbolically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting that Guts himself, you know, he doesn't directly uh, compare himself, but just, you know, he he admires Rickert's, you know, strength and sort of what he's done here. Yeah. And then uh, Puck points out, that uh, he's met uh, met Rickert before. Yeah, and, uh, yeah you know, actually, that's one thing I'm, I forgot to mention in the last episode is this small panel with Puck where he says, huh, that's him, you know. So Rickert, or Puck recognizes him from that time in the wagon. Yeah. And also, the Rickert is very wary of Puck and Elves of yeah. he has a because he's got a bad, aside from meeting Puck, he's had bad experiences with uh, quote-unquote elves. Looking, yeah, pixie and elf-looking uh, creatures since obviously the the injured and wounded he was with uh with the band of the falcon were wiped out by uh roisin and her her band sure. hmm. and so hmm. uh i believe they ask if he uh if he's still over, they ask him if he's over his fear yet and he says nope and is, is walking a little bit ahead and so rickard uh, is basically taking guts down to the cave where casca was forced to live for the past two years and where, you know, he should be safe for the night. And uh, Guts is uh, noting that it looks the same and has the same feeling. And Puck also points out how, you know, it was definitely a place elves lived and that they'll be safe there. The, the look on and, Guts' face at this moment, because, you know, as, as Guts says, it's the same as it was. Uh, I mean, this has to bring back bad memories for him, because this was a dark time for him. You know, yeah. it's right before he set out on his quest and they stayed down there for close to a month, I think they said in volume 14, before he set out as a black swordsman. Yeah. So this this has to be a place of just depression for him because of everything that happened with Casca and him at this point. Yeah, and also yeah, because I mean, 
I think he realizes that he's just like he's also thinking out about the fact she lived there alone for a long time. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, Rickard uh, tells him, you know, to get his rest. That they're going to work on his things while he's uh, down here overnight. And so yeah, uh, at the same time, <laughs> you know, Guts tries to apologize, and Erica has t- informed Puck that she's g- that he's going to be sleeping with her. And uh, Puck sort of is, uh, <laughs> he's taking it pretty well, but uh, at the same time, he's a little dubious about the whole prospect. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, Rickard and Guts make nice because they did have, you know, I don't know why, you know, I don't know why Rickard's really apologizing other than he did maybe pointedly say how he had a reason to come back and he wasn't just going to abandon the people. I don't know if he meant, you know, to really tweak Guts that way, but he's in any case, he seems to be sorry if he did. I think it's just Rickert clearing the air because before they they had this talk, Guts didn't know all the information. He was really, you know, this is like a, this is a very, a moment of clarity to really say, now that we know everything, listen, dude, sorry. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he meant to say, well, I, you know, stick by the people I love and like you. you (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just a strange thing. I mean, maybe he's apologizing that Casca got away, whatever the circumstances, what he's sorry that it happened. (laughs) And yeah, like you guys said, it's just a way sure. to, yeah, patch things up, put a little bow on it, and so they bid uh, guts a good night, and uh, we see the moon coming through the cave, and we see the light coming through, and we see guts very isolated, you know, sort of with his back against the wall, with the flame in the middle of the room. He's not even—he doesn't seem to even really be taking comfort in the fire. No, and as yeah, we he, he can. Yeah. I mean, he's not used to sleeping alone like this. You know, this is a very foreign air, oh, alien yeah. circumstance and, to him. You know, yeah, he can't a- sleep. He doesn't have a sword, and you know, he basically talks about how he's not going to be able to sleep at night the rest of his life, probably. So, you know, he is not going to get a lot of rest. And then we first see his eyes sort of playing tricks on him here as he looks into the fire. He can, you know, he's remembering Casca, you know, or at least having a vision of her sitting, you know, up against the wall. She's obviously not really there. And he starts, you know, thinking back on Godo's words, you know, everything he told him about, you know, going off alone, leaving behind these irre- irreplaceable things that he had just so he could sort of, you know, burn through his own hatred and, you know, living that evil life. And this leads him to, you know, flashing back. You know, he's kind of going over the entire back and forth, you know, of the conversation in his head where he remembers what happened at the eclipse and he, you know, reconsiders like – you know, I didn't run away. I can't, you know, get away from that. How can he, you know, just let something like that go? And uh, and again, he considers Godo's Godo's words, along with uh, you know, the beast sort of speaking to him. This is, you know, a very sort of interesting. This is one of my favorite shots of the beast. Actually, you know, it's sort mm-hmm. of addressing yeah. him. See the shadow behind his head. You know, cute little doggy. Up- <laughs> yeah, look. Basically, it looks very much like this sort of dog version of Venom. You know the way it's it looks portrayed. Like a dragon to me. Yeah, I mean it. It's it's just a monster, especially yeah. if you see the close up of its face. And it's basically doing the other side of the argument, telling him, you know, there's no way you can atone for these things. There's no way you can escape what happened. All you can do is, you know, kill and you know, uh, create more bloodshed. And so, you know, it gets to the point. Guts even turns around. You know, and looks at the you know the shadow of himself on the wall, you know, speaking to him, and he reconsiders Godo's words, and you know, starts questioning. You know, he might be right. You know, and what can he, 
you know, what can he really say about leaving her like that, leaving her locked down there in the state that she was in? You know, there's not really any uh, any excuse for that. And then he starts talking about how he starts considering further his stake for revenge for, you know, avenging the band of the Falcon, avenging Casca, and that he had already left. And he remembers, you know, uh, Carcass telling him that and Judo and, you know, pretty much everyone t- telling him he had already gone off on his own. You know, what right did he have to avenge them? You know, Carcass points out, you were gone during our worst point and was, in fact, you know, indirectly responsible for it. And so he considers that and that, you know, it really was just him, you know, leaving and going off and starting a war for himself and that this was his fight that he started. He didn't have to do it. He could have stayed there and taken care of Casca. So he's pretty much, this is where he realizes that everything Godot said was true and, you know, also that, you know, other than revenge burning inside him, he also has that love for Casca, that campfire. You know, he mentions the campfire feeling, referencing, mm-hmm. you know, the bonfire of dreams, also remembering his comrades, all of that stuff. And he realizes, you know, he made the same mistake, that he left those things behind again without realizing that, you know, he still had it. He still had precious things, and he's the one who let them go. And yeah. then he remembers, of course, the prophecy. And that's what uh, gives him the resolve to sort of stand up and say, he's, you know, before it's too late, he's going to he's gonna get those things back and never lose them again. Yeah. The key, key shot, you know, of the, mm. of the scene, of the volume, maybe of the entire series, God's deciding not to leave Casca again. Yeah. Yep. Another solemn promise to himself in the cave. The two panels I wanted to focus on real quick were... Um, Right before he kind of gets into the thick of his reflection, you know, we see this panel of his eye, and he's talking about, uh, he's reflecting on the particular line about you ran away so that your own malice could burn within you. The, the focus on the flame kind of in his eye here, we see that dramatic two page shot of the eclipse. I love how disorienting it is, and you almost have to flip the page around to get oriented, and even there, it's just chaos. I just like the idea that this is constantly. The surging within guts. We're getting like an inner look at what's what drives him. And of course, he talks about how could I run away from that? That find that image is seared into my right eye. Yeah, it's really it's like it, you know it's like he has this wound that's just constantly waiting to burst back open again. Yeah, but particularly get that impression with that two page shot of the eclipse. You know, if that's your constant reflection, you know, is that moment. You know, this is this, this of course. This is a very abstract kind of uh, conglomeration of different images of the eclipse, kind of all strewn together in this big tapestry. You have all the, you know, I don't need to repeat everything, but you guys you get the idea. Um, <clears throat> and also just how mad Guts had, had become at this point. That that shot when we, when we finally returned back to him after that shot of Femto, the look on his face. You know, he's almost half human basically at that point. Yeah. And when the beast speaks to him, you said that he turns and faces the shadow it's gotten to the point where, you know, though they're in a place that's protected, this is, this, you know, this beast has become such a part of him now that, you know, it can yeah, speak to him. It's the enemy yeah, within, you know, it. that he's dealing exactly. with. And he's it's become almost a separate entity. The thing is, uh, he's basically hallucinating here, you know, like he, he's yeah. hearing voices. So, <clears throat> you know, like that scene, like you said, you know, what I like is also the blood, you know, when he, we see, uh, a kind of recap of the blood, you know, uh, you know, falling down on the scene of Fento yeah. kissing Casca and everything. And then we see the state it puts him in. Uh, well, like you said, where he's like, you know, half mad. And, you know, I like to think that, you know, like you said, it's always like in his right eye, you know, it's always there, you know, that, that, that scene is always there. It's haunting him. And I think it's also something Fury does understand, but 
It's the fact that this trauma that Guts has been carrying is with him all the time. So even though he's not crazy like Casca, he still has got this huge trauma that, like you say, is, it's a bit like the brand, you know, it's something that's always there, always hurting, always ready to burst open. There's also all this talk about flames and uh, black flames, uh, feeble flames title, uh, yeah. you know, and that relates to, of course, to, you know, the anger and hatred that he, that fuels him. But it also it's, it relates to what Flora talks about in volume 24, a karmic flame yeah, uh, as being what mm-hmm. props him up, which Goto lodged on, or latched onto immediately without any need for knowledge of the magical world. Mm-hmm. I just think yeah. it's interesting that Miura has been consistent about that kind of fuel or that, you know, negative energy that props cuts up as a black swordsman. Well, yeah, you know, and what I like is that the feeble flame, which is his love for Casca, is what yeah. keeps him from, you know, uh, with, like you said, it's exactly what Froa says, you know, it's what keeps him from just madness and death and everything like that. And yeah, that's what Gut says in this episode as well, is that uh, wasn't that last feeble flame mm-hmm. all that barely kept me from being consumed. Yeah, so he already realizes it even then. Right. So Which, you know... We've 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 talked about it before earlier, but I just wanted to point out. I think I think it's really nice that you know this the perspective's been put back on Casca because of the prophecy, and now Guts has to go rescue Casca. But not, not only because he needs to disrupt that, he needs to save her. If he doesn't save her, he can't save himself. You know, as we realize in this episode, so Mira has really tied these two things together pretty well. Yeah, and it's a it's a nice way to turn him around, like it's a. But it's a continuation, but at the same time, it also helps move on from pure Black Swordsman, you know, I gotta kill them all, to, you know, I got something else, and maybe, you know, it's, you know, I, I'm realizing that it's what's more important for me, you know, like that Bayon mm-hmm. Revenge. I need, you know, to stop running from my fears and sorrow and everything and face it, and that also, you know, uh, means, you know, turning away from revenge. So it's it's interesting because it's, it might seem contradictory, but actually it makes perfect sense when you think about it properly. Yeah. And it's interesting just that, yeah, this moment of clarity and where he literally stands up and in the light and, you know, declare, it yeah. makes this declaration. And that's sort of the, that's the trajectory he's been on ever since. Yeah. And it's, it actually reminds me of uh, his declaration of war, you know, when he's mm-hmm. uh, speaking to the specters, holding a sword. And this one is yeah. another kind of declaration, but it's, uh, it's the same kind of thing, you know, that he would never, you know, uh, let it go again. So, yeah, very interesting, very powerful scene. It's uh, one of my favorites in the series. I was going to say stuff, but you guys nailed it better than I could have said it. So <laughs> that so is all I have to say. There's one thing we didn't mention is that when uh, Puck uh, is talking about Rickert or whatever, he, you know, he does a kind of uh, imitation of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it's Boyd, you know, but he says, like, oh, all lies within causal- causality oh, or yeah. something He's like got that. His it's got to be. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he, hasn't, he hasn't met Skull Knight yet. So, yeah. It's or a, something like that yeah, in the Dark Horse translation. <laughs> it's just, you know, yeah, it's just pretty funny, you know, that he's trying to to do it, but, you know, it just comes across uh, ridiculous. And the next panel, yeah. he's just, you know, laughing with Erica. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, also, he's, you know... He's being, in his own way, kind of shy about accepting thanks for protecting guts, and we see a little bit more of that in the following episode. But uh, it's the, it's the first round of thanks that Puck gets for keep, keeping guts safe. Yeah, doing his own little part. Mm-hmm. It's actually interesting, you know, uh, going to the next episode to the holy ground, which marks, you know, like 
the beginning of the, the next journey, the big one. So you know, one thing, one thing I love is that, that shot of uh, Puck, you know, having a bad dream, like he's being held by Erica while she dreams of uh, chestnuts. <laughs> That's really, that's really pretty great. I, I love that one. It's, uh, it's very funny. While Rickert is, uh, walking, you know, all night long to try and, uh, upgrade, you know, God's equipment. And then, yeah, Puck goes down and, uh, they have a little scene where, you know, Puck basically cures Rickert of his, uh, aversion to elves, which he got after that, uh, episode with Roshin, where she just, you know, order, uh, lackeys to, uh, eat all of uh, his friends in the member of the band of the falcon and then yeah he thanks him for what he did for taking care of uh, of guts he talks a bit about what happened you know uh, godo becoming ill and uh, erica like she hasn't laughed since then but uh, puck brought back laughter to her and then he talks about the fact guts also you know like puck also managed to keep guts I don't know if it's sane, but at least he kept him from ins- in complete insanity. So, uh, like you said, it's a, I, th- I think it's one of the rare cases where we really get sense of the importance of Puck, you know, something. And yeah, like you said, he kind of, you know, he's shy about accepting the compliment, but uh, we, you, we can tell it's definitely true. He is acting shy. The compliment that Rickard's paying him doesn't bounce off of him completely. He is acknowledging it in his own little way. And I like the little faces that Puck makes throughout these little panels here. You know, his kind of like blushing smile. It's a rare moment for Puck. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's true. It's a, Actually, I can't think of another time where he gets embarrassed like that. It's really, yeah. it's really cute. He looks like a little boy. It's, a, it's really interesting because nowadays he's got... Like he's putting on a more like an old man, a dirty old man attitude, but uh yeah, he's more like a, a boy in this scene, so it's pretty cute. He says he'll help Rick at walk. <laughs> and <laughs> which is putting on this little you know, I don't know, it's like a it's kind of Japanese robot thing. Yeah, I was thinking like Mega Man, but there's probably a better analogue than Mega Man. But yeah, the drill cutter and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. then Rickard <laughs> says drill? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then, you know, Goro gets up, I mean he gets down from uh the attic and start, you know, complaining about the weird thing Guts drags up with him. So he's just, you know, he's being Godo, basically, just, you know, complaining all the time. Also that he's just shrugging off an elf in his in his workshop, like, what's this crazy thing? He's always bringing some crazy shit to the, you know, yeah, just love his attitude. Just a grumpy old man, and <clears throat> Rickert is uh, worried about him, and just, you know, uh, he's going to work, you know, he's just bare-chested. But basically, he's just, you know, He's overexerting himself, but uh, yeah, he just brushes him off and uh, tells him actually pretty seriously that uh, he should take care of Erica, that she's his responsibility. And actually, we get, which is interesting, at the time we get her backstory. The fact yeah, she didn't expect it. Which is the fact <coughs> she's an orphan, she lost her family in the war, and that, uh, yeah, he just passed by and uh, he felt human, you know. He who had known nothing but, you know, forging and, bl- and smithing and steel. And, uh, yeah, seeing that kid, he decided to, you know, take her with him. That sentiment actually resonates more now than it would if we learned that earlier because of what we just learned about the importance of Casca to Guts and the importance of Puck to Guts in, in getting him through those dark times. You know, having Erica there, someone to protect, someone to help him stay grounded in, in humanity. Yeah kind of makes Godot make a little bit more sense, I think. Yeah, it explains, yeah, his point of view, his experience, yeah. and also the kind of character he is. Someone who cared, you know, who didn't care much for human interaction. 
But yeah, faced with that, you know, uh, orphan crying, <clears throat> he couldn't refuse, and yeah, it's what kept him human. Yeah, I love these these mad looks we get of Godot as he stares into the flame, and you know, we've already heard how he feels about sparks in general. So to see him return to his work so ferociously like this is very cool to watch. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I love how, like, he looks very intent, you know, focused, like, insanely focused. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and he talks about a good sword. That's a really cool speech, actually, you know, putting the the dragon slayer to the fire and talking about a good sword and the fact that even if it's damaged, it has cracks and rust and everything, it can always be reborn in, in the fire if it has good, you know, iron in its core. So, mm-hmm. and yeah, and the fact he tells, you know, Rickett, uh, to tell Gus not to turn out like, uh, like himself. And that, I love that panel, that very intense, almost like soul gazing panel when that, when he really says that moment. Uh, but I wonder though, did Rickert relay that message? I don't think he does. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I don't. I hope he did off camera or off screen rather. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think he did. Oh, and that really awesome shot following that when he strikes the, uh, you know, the yeah. angle. Yeah, he strikes, uh, yeah, you see him just strike, I guess, Dragon Slayer, and then mm-hmm. a shot of the, of Dawn, you know, through the yeah. mountains. The sword is raised and like, it cuts the light. That's, right. uh, that's, that's pretty great. You know, the way it's, uh, it's shown that it's basically been uh, refurbished. It's like new, you know. Yeah, a sharp edge. Also, just the implication that, you know, he worked through the night. It just, that one strike of the, of the hammer. And then it's like, you kind of get what happens. But yeah. it's very dramatic, very dramatic effect. Also, the fact that this is all a very, you know, there's no text on these page, in this page, but it's just beautiful and tells the story enough, you know? Yep. And uh, we see the rest of God's equipment, and we can tell that, yeah, not only Godot, but Rickert walked all night long to refurbish everything. His armor, his... Uh, pauldrons. Yeah, his pauldrons, his gauntlets, his tools. He get, gives him the... You know, the bombs, the grenades, and, uh, his new crossbow, which is more, uh, what's a, a compact, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, it's pretty great. And then they get to talk because Guts, he's in a hurry. He's not, you know, wasting any time. Right. So, yeah, he's gonna look for Casca and Rickert, uh, gives him advice, you know, uh, he, Guts asks him if he knows of any holy ground. Thinking back about what or sheep are there, or shepherds are there. Like, like how Rickard's supposed to make sense of that. Like, uh, I don't know about that sheep part. It makes sense at the same time because, like, it's a pretty obscure oracle, you know. And uh, I guess if you take it literally, like, it's hard to make sense that uh, yeah. you know the sheep are supposed to be people. So he just yeah. thinks back to what the the child said, and um, yeah, and Rickard uh, puts him on the on the tray to Albion, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he nailed it with his first guess. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining there's not too many, uh, temples mm-hmm. or anything like that, uh, around this path. So it would make sense. And I, and I like, I don't expect Casca to have walked. <laughs> I also like how he, I mean, this is a very small, nerdy detail, esoteric detail, but he says, I don't know why, but it's referred to as the Tower of Conviction. It kind of draws, uh, question about the, the origin of its name. Of course, we eventually learn through Mosgus, the next volume, the origin of the name, but it kind of draws attention mm-hmm. to itself, I think. So that's just neat. Small detail. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, it just makes it sound ominous and also important. Like, it could have been a simple monastery wouldn't be a holy ground, you know? Like, I mean, it wouldn't be sure. ref- referred to like that. So this is uh, kind of a big place. And like I was saying, it's not like Casca walked hundreds of kilometers, so it's probably like the only one, big one that uh, stood out. I, I know we're crunched for time, but I, I thought about this during the reread, and I wanted to get your take on it. And that is the title of the monastery, or the place called... St. Albion Temple. 
uh, also referred to as the Tower of Conviction. Why? I know we don't have any way of knowing, but wouldn't it make sense if the tower was named after the event in which it, which you know, it's known to be holy ground for? For example, is Albion the name of that wise man? Yeah, perhaps? it's uh, yeah, of course. It's actually, I mean, that's not at all. Uh, uh, I would say it's not a wild guess at all. Yeah, it's quite likely that uh, the guy who was, you know, uh, locked up there was named Albion. Because, you know, like, if you, you know, usually saints are na- are people. Yeah. So, uh, if a man was convicted there, uh, which is why he's called Tavern Conviction, I guess, well, there, there are many people convicted, but if the big guy who was convicted there and, you know, blah, 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 uh, was made a saint, then, it, yeah, it makes sense that he would name, be named Albion. Actually, I think the conviction, we'll get to this in the next volume, but I actually think the conviction part is that he so fervently prayed to God, you know, and then God sent an angel down. That's that. That was the conviction part that he was. He had the conviction to believe in God and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. But I don't know. It's who knows. Yeah. Moving hmm. right along, Rickert gives him the points him in the right direction. Guts and Puck both point out that there is a basis for that. It's not a complete guess that you know. Yeah. There's going to be a witch trial. That's kind of the final connecting piece for Guts that it is definitely the place. Yeah. And I like how Puck is uh, wondering to himself. Uh, after he notices Guts' face. I think, you know, <clears throat> what's, what's something interesting in Japanese is that I think about the witch trial, why Guts makes the what's connection with Casca. I think, you know, the way Rick had said it might be that there would be witch trials, you know, in plurals. Mm. There might be, you know, because an Inquisitor was going there. Right. So, but yeah, obviously Guts makes the connection with Casca, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of glossed over it, but what Rickard's saying in that one panel about uh, the, the circumstances of Albion and the Holy See, he's really laying the groundworks for our understandings of what happens in 18, volumes 18 and 19. You know, but talking about how the, you know heretics are in the shadows of this place, an inquisitor is coming to town sent by the Holy See. He's he's really just describing the whole ball of wax that's about to explode in Albion. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's just interesting we get that so quickly. Yeah, we get a. It's just a small panel or two, but we we get a lot of a uh, lot of info, you know, to which make, we can make deductions. And we also like the fact that Rickard thinks it's too far away for Casca to have, you know, gotten there. Mm. But God is convinced, you know, like he's put two and two together with the, you know, uh, prophecy or what has been foretold at least, and uh, he's going there. And I, I like that Puck reflects that. Jose, he reflects on the change in guts, you know, the change yeah. of attitude. A different look for guts in that face, caring look almost. Yeah, and that makes him wonder who this, you know, Casca woman is. Yeah, <laughs> well, the, the puck's face in that one panel. Anyway, he heads out without a look back. He gives Godo a kind of a nominal departure. And he says he's going to count on him when he returns. Uh, yeah. um, Rickard also tells him to come back once you get Casca. And guys just kind of wordlessly gives him a look. You know, it's something Godot reflects on, but, you know, Guts is so focused on doing his own things that he doesn't, he doesn't even realize that he'll never see Godot again, you know. And uh, Godot gets, you know, reflects on that, you know, the fact he won't even stop and acknowledge it, the fact it's their last meeting, because he's so busy, you know, with his own stuff that, yeah, he won't, you know. The, The top panel on the last page of the episode of uh, Guts walking away. Actually, that's not... Anyway, the top p- part of that panel is very reminiscent of the end of Volume 14 or the beginning of... End of the Golden Age as he departs Godot's house. The same yeah. angle and everything. Yeah, I agree. Kind of uh, resonating with that panel. 
And yeah, I like that Godot's reflection of guts. This is our final moment. That's where we're going to stop for today. But we'll be back to finish out Volume 17 and dip into Volume 18 when we come back for our next reread. Thanks for listening, and we will be back. <laughs>